Hello and welcome to Newspeak, the New Culture Forum's weekly look at the news agenda. Uh, as usual, I'm very pleased to be joined by Rafe Hadelman Koo, our senior fellow and royal commentator and historian. Hi, Rafe. And uh, this week by Patrick O'Flynn, a columnist for The Spectator and former UKIP MEP. Uh, good to see you, Patrick. And um, you. Yeah, very good. Before we talk about the week's events, uh, just want to bring your attention to our new book. It's called State of Emergency. It's available now on Amazon. Um, it's the third in a series we've done. You might remember the long march fighting back and now State of Emergency. This is really what we feel should happen in order to save Britain, basically. Um, it's a cracking read, uh, six, seven essays and our pledges, which we're going to be putting to all candidates next year. So uh, please do look that up, uh, State of Emergency. Um, speaking of states of emergency and everything, we're in a state at least. Um, Patrick, can you explain mm. where do we sort of stand now after this Rwanda vote that we had yesterday? We're recording this on a Wednesday. Last night we had the vote, didn't we? And the government sort of survived or, mm. you know, whatever. Where does it leave us? Uh, I suppose you would say that, that Downing Street got the best of the expectation management game. Right. And the, the, the Conservative rebels got slight amounts of eggs on their face. They, they egg on their faces. They, they sort of uh, implied they were all going to rebel and then sort of three dozen of them uh, abstained. And this was only the second reading of the bill. The, mm. the, the real parliamentary battle will be at third reading when amendments mm. go down. Uh, in January. So Rishi Sunak has a sort of a bill in the ring, as it were, some kind of let's do something, mm. a kind of answer to the disastrous defeat in the Supreme uh, Court. But take a step back. Um, why is he in this position now? Because he didn't take any notice of Suella Braveman and Robert Jenrick telling him that the illegal migration bill wasn't remotely mm. strong enough. Um, I think uh, the average person is now very sceptical yeah. about the idea of a central African country uh, having to, to accept a contracted out duty to create a durable deterrent against illegal mm. immigration to the United Kingdom. It seems to me it's highly unlikely uh, to work. You've obviously got individual rights of appeal under this legislation. It only takes uh, one migrant to hit on a brilliant sob story that convinces the courts and, mm. and that will become the standard template. Robert Jenrick in particular, I think, has been radicalised by this. He was Sunak's man in the Home Office. Now he seems to be lining up with the fundamentalists mm. that there's, a, there's a, a fundamental issue of sovereignty, again, which you can trace back from staying out of the euro, leaving the EU, this is again about nation states controlling their, yes. their borders. And I think the magical thinking is being done by the government here with James Cleverly saying we're pushing the edge of the envelope on our international obligations. Well, you know, so what the test is, is will it work? And I don't think it will. And somebody's going to have to bite the bullet on, on leaving the European Convention on Human Rights, which the Tories aren't, aren't looking like they're willing to do. So we're going to go into an election where the boats, stop the boats, could have been this great dividing line for the mm. Tories. Uh, Starmer is now so confident on the issue, he says, I'll pull the plug on Rwanda, even if it's 
up mm. and running and mm. working. Mm. He feels no pressure. The only dividing line is straight down the middle of the Conservative Party. So mm. disastrous politics from Sunak. He didn't strain every sinew. I think there was a poll yesterday showing 1% of the electorate thinks this bill is going to work. Yeah. <clears throat> do people actually even understand quite what the bill is, do you think? Um, well, I think the problem is, of course, people are beginning to realise how few people are actually going to end up going to Rwanda in the mm. first place. And remember, we were told originally by the Conservative government that merely the announcement of this bill would be enough to deter people from coming over here, which obviously has been shown to be completely false. Mm. I mean, this, is, this whole episode of, the, of this vote has been, you know, I would say the most stressful act of futility for a prime minister, mm. because it's going to achieve nothing. As Patrick has said, Keir Starmer, even just yesterday on Radio 4, said that he will cancel the Rwanda plan which, were he to come to office. And we all know that he is basically going to come to office. The chances of any, of any plane taking off before the general election, I think, are next to nil. That's one of the reasons why the Tories are contemplating a spring election, because, of course, there's every fear that there won't be any planes going to Rwanda in the summer. And actually, boats may be at a peak level during the summer. Mm. And so there's talk of that happening, which, which begs the question, why are we having this major distraction of Rwanda? You know, there are so many issues that could be focused on. And this is a classic example of bread and circuses, a complete distraction from the real issues, mm. which are essentially, why is the Home Office approving 74% of asylum applications? Mm. This mm. is a scandal no one seems to be addressing. It's a far higher rate than in any other European mm. country, several times higher than you get in France and Sweden, for example. Why aren't we processing enough uh, applicants as well. Uh, you know, why are we making it uh, more attractive to come here than to stay in France? There are so many other issues. Now, I'm on record as having said, I favour the idea of offshore, offshore processing centres, just like the Australians had with Nauru, which is over a thousand miles off the coast of Australia. I've always favoured the Ascension Islands mm. as a place where you can absolutely process mm. people and then you send them back to where they've came, come from. You may have a deal with Rwanda for those people that can't be sent back home, but that's a very, that's a very different issue. And those are where the, the solution should lie. Also getting the French to actually mm. do what the Belgians do and intercept boats when they've just gone into the water. The French for some reason don't do that and the Belgians have had huge success. We're paying them so much money. You know, they were very happy. If, if they won't do it, we'll do it for them and come over. Well, they were very happy to have our help at Dunkirk. We went and yes. came over to save their chaps then. Taking I think they, view, they, they, they owe us big time. They can <laughs> do it now. So Rwanda is, is a major distraction. But what it actually has shown is that, you know, Suella Braverman was was vilified even by her own party establishment. She was derided as being incompetent and unsuited for her position. And what the last two weeks have shown us is that she was actually right all along. Yeah, right all along, but apparently, Patrick, you know, actually, when it came to it, she was quite ineffective. I, I, that's what I understood. Well, I do hear that in the actual key meetings with senior civil servants, she was more of a, of a mouse than a lion. Yeah, People say yeah. that. On the other hand, if you have a prime minister who is not prepared to implement the policies mm. you tell him are necessary, then you are going to fail. Mm. And I think there was a flavour of that with Priti Patel and Boris Johnson, yeah. is that he wouldn't really grasp the nettles. Mm. Uh, she made the mistake of overclaiming that she'd broken the business model of people smugglers when she hadn't. And, you know, if you overclaim and underdeliver three or four times in a row, your credibility goes. I don't think... Suella Braveman overclaimed. She was clearly very frustrated uh, underneath the surface. Uh, but I think she's, as Rafe was saying, she has been proven correct that the last act that we were told was going to sort this out wasn't tough enough. Uh, there weren't these notwithstanding clauses in it. 
Uh, and then equally on the issue of, let's not forget, legal immigration running at net almost three quarters of a million a year. Six times she sent proposals uh, to bring that down, warning Rishi Sunak it was running out of control. And again, he did nothing. Mm. I mean, that's one of the most amazing things of this whole thing is the, is the way in which um, Rishi Sunak has only just discovered legal migration as being an issue. Mm. If you remember his five pledges that he made were to, you know, re halve inflation, re reduce the debt, I forget what the other two were, and then stop the boats. Whereas he could have said reduce legal and illegal immigration. Mm. Legal immigration mm. wasn't even on his priority list. When, whereas we know for a fact it's what is the, the greatest issue or the second biggest issue for voters. And we know full well that actually uh, the average British voter is not only to the to the right of um, of of. Um, most MPs, they're to the right of all Tory MPs as well on the issue of immigration. And the fact that he should have fumbled the ball on this so dramatically, I think, speaks a lot to the mindset that exists within the Tory mm. party establishment that is so disconnected mm. with their voters. Yes. And indeed, I, th I think that's why Starmer feels so relaxed on Rwanda and stop the boats now, because Starmer is actually occupying ground on legal mm, immigration mm, to the right of the mm, conservatives mm, this man mm. who stood for the labor leadership as an open borders fanatic <laughs> he only has to get net migration down to half a million a year and he can say well i've lowered it from what i inherited it's ridiculous well, there's this apparently the new conservatives group of mm. mps their big kind of claim is we're going to get it down to two hundred thousand, and you sort of think two hundred thousand. You know, the last poll, I think mm. it was this week, showed that 53% of people want, like, nada, zero yes. migration now. Yes. So, you know, that's 53%. Yeah. Um, that's not, in, you know, the t obviously with the Tories, Tory voters would be much more than that. I mean, you've written about this recently, Patrick. The, the people who would have supported this bill, I, you know, not rebelled it or not abstained as it was in the end, mm. um, they are essentially these sort of one nation Tories, is that right? I mean, is that's what they call themselves? Well, I think this is a new discovery. It certainly was to me that there are over 100, perhaps 106 Conservative MPs who are signed up to this one nation caucus. That's even after the, the shakeout that Boris Johnson yeah. achieved over Brexit when he took the whip away and took candidates away and people like Amber Rudd and Rory Stewart and Dominic Grieve and David Gork all left. Mm. There are still more than 100 Conservative MPs who think this legislation go to, goes too far, who won't hear you know, a word of us rubbing up against our so-called international obligations. And it's not just on this issue, it's on the pace towards net zero, yeah. uh, it's on you know tax and spend, it's on alternatives to custody rather than strong law and order. There's this blocking group of 100 plus Conservative MPs who will stop a Conservative regime doing anything Conservative. Mm -hmm. So the Conservative Party would have to win the next election by a majority of, say, 250 mm -hmm. in order to get any Conservative legislation through. So what is the point of anyone voting for them, yes. you know, even if they were persuaded that Rishi Sunak has Conservative instincts himself? I mean, one nation, actually, is a bit of a misnomer, isn't it? That was a Disraeli thing. Mm. I mean, the, the, these people seem to be of this class of people who are not recognisably Tory in any way. It's a, it's, it's a one home counties <laughs> party, yeah. I would say, mm. rather than a one nation party, mm. because, of course, it's actually it's a retreating to the blue wall and ignoring mm. the seismic 
you know, almost once in a century shift we've seen in party allegiances that happened because of Brexit, where we now have, you know, small C, old fashioned Labour working class voters coming over to the Tory party, uh, you know, lending their vote for that one election to see whether they'll be proved to have been had uh, mm. done that correctly. But yeah, you're quite right. There's the, the One Nation Tories are a force that have basically, uh, you know, hampered any attempt to get true conservative policies done. And it looks like they have, because they're a, far, they're a larger number of those uh, MPs than there are from these so-called five families that um, mm. Mark Francois loves to, mm. to talk about so much, claiming that the media talk about it, although I've never heard them talk about it, just him telling us. Um, but so it seems as if, for example, the Rwanda, I think the Rwanda bill will go through as it is simply because there are enough votes there mm -hmm. uh, on that side. And again, it's, it's them hampering what the British people actually want. And we've seen it time and again on policy after policy. I mean, when you think, Archie Patrick, you know, when you were an MEP, UK MEP, during the referendum, the scale of betrayal is mm. unbelievable, isn't it, really? Mm. Yeah, it completely is. Um, some of it's down to Boris Johnson, who gets yeah. an easy ride. On immigration policy, mm. it was Boris Johnson mm. who, who took the, the brakes off. I mean, mm. he is the one who authorised lower earnings uh, thresholds, relaxation of student numbers and numbers of dependents that could come in. He gave a completely unqualified offer to the, the Hong Kong British National Overseas passport holders. He didn't even go around New Zealand, Australia, Canada saying, look, can we do something collectively for them? He took the whole onus on the United Kingdom. Uh, same again on Ukraine, uncapped numbers. You know, it's no surprise, is it, that yeah. having promised overall numbers will come down, uh, not only the opposite happened, but on the most unbelievable scale. Yeah. And I think that's the, the biggest betrayal. And I actually think Boris Johnson could have ridden out the storms on, you know, backbench sleaze, the storms on Partygate, if he'd held true mm. to the voters who backed him wanting immigration to be lowered. There mm. would have been a solid wall of support and the, the polls wouldn't have ebbed away for Boris like they actually did. It is quite extraordinary as well, isn't it? That you know, what is it now, 2019, almost, to, almost I think to the nearly to the week of the election, you know, Boris Johnson election, and the level of opportunity that there was, which has come to zero, nothing, is it? That's been the greatest tragedy and travesty of, of the last few years. If you think about it, when you have an eight-seat majority, this government should have been in power until uh, you know 2029 uh, uh, easily could have been there till 2034 actually they could have been in power for another for 15 years just for this term and you think about what, what Tony Blair was able to achieve in his 13 years of office mm. you know this country is a post-revolutionary society mm. because of the reforms mm. and the changes to our constitution and devolution and immigration all brought in and the long mastery institutions of Blair and we have you know wasted so much time when we could have tried to reverse that and we would have had ample opportunity to actually do hopefully reverse to the tide on so much of the damage that's been done to this country and to see it thrown away and to see it thrown away so cavalierly to have seen no clear plan you know love him or loathe him Dominic Cummings actually understood so many of the reforms mm. and changes from the BBC to the civil service he was plugged into the needs of the voters 
and he had as his mouthpiece Boris Johnson, who was clearly not on side, but would basically do whatever he was told if it made him popular. And that was a wonderful pairing. And unfortunately, because of COVID and what happened and the antics of Carrie Antoinette, we saw mm. an end to Dominic Cummings. And that was also, I think, the great tragedy, because since then, you know, Boris Johnson was, was, was a puppet with no string master. And we've had no one since then who seems to have had any idea of what the Tory party's agenda for change really is. Yeah. Did, every time Sunak's tried to reset, he's gone down, he's gone down in the polls. What do you make uh, of the way he's performed at this COVID inquiry sooner? Well, I'm struggling with what they call cognitive dissonance about that, because <laughs> it's the one thing he's done as prime minister that I actually felt an element of, of sympathy and even support for him. He was arguing perfect, just a basic case of you have to do a cost-benefit analysis mm. on these measures. And the inquiry seems clearly to be set up to say mm. we should have locked down harder, mm. uh, faster. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's challenging not only Sunak, but Johnson as well on uh, things they could have done that with the benefit of hindsight, perhaps they should have done. Mm. But there's all sorts of other things that, that the scientists were urging them to do based on projections, which turned out to be completely pie in the sky and complete mm. nonsense, mm. which would have caused an even bigger uh, hit to the economy and even more... Uh, hit to, to public morale, to mental health problems, to children falling behind at school. Uh, so the inquiry seems to me it's, it's just a sort of uh, lib left uh, love in with a public health kind of um, uh, outlook and, and, and no balance whatsoever. Yeah. So I actually thought Rishi Sunak did okay at the inquiry. I, I, yeah, I think this, this COVID inquiry is clearly a whitewash designed to actually absolve from sin all of those involved in public health, all of the scientific mm. base, and to put all of the blame essentially on the on the shoulders of the uh, of politicians, and including in that, of course, uh, contrarian scientists, scientists who actually held opposing viewpoints. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they've already written their concluding report. Mm. I mean, well, what the purpose of an inquiry surely is to learn from past mistakes. Mm. And if we're unwilling to actually interrogate properly those people who advise the prime minister. Um, you know, the, the way, the, the reverence with which, you know, we saw uh, Valence and Witty treated compared to the terrible sort of a prosecutorial style for Carl Hennigan, you know, who was the mm -hmm. uh, Oxford University professor for, for, for evidence-based medicine, who was basically made to look as if he was a fool and an idiot. And it just showed, it gave a real sense yes. that this actually isn't an inquiry. This is a mm. prosecution, actually, more than anything else. How, how much is this whole thing going to cost? Do you know well, hundreds of millions, it's the just COVID inquiry, absolutely. It? Yeah. You know, it, it's probably going to go past, was it the, the bloody Sunday inquiry, yeah. which is the current yeah. record? I think that was 130 million. I think we're, we're heading for multiples of that. Oh. You mentioned, um, you know, Blairite institutional, you know, uh, the long march through the institutions. A few things have happened with the civil service this week, haven't they, which is sort of actually a part of that. One which really is eye-catching is that civil senior civil servants have their pay connected to their sort of achievements with diversity and inclusion. Is That's that right? Well, for, for bonuses, uh, to achieve bonuses, senior civil servants are, are examined not on the performance of their duties on its own, but on what they do outside of their job, including, for example, on the, 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 the level to which they've promoted diversity, the EDI, you know, this equality, diversity uh, and inclusivity. And of course, 
the whole point of, of bonuses is to reward service to your job, to do your job properly. It's about seeing you know, whether you can deliver projects ahead of time and below budget. And what this is doing essentially is it's, it's completely removing uh, that, that, that focus that should be on the job onto completely nebulous other areas. And you know, there are seven billion pounds of public money is spent on diversity and inclusion programs. This was a a uh, report by the Conservative Way Forward uh, think tank from governments, quangers and government contractors. You know, £7 billion, we can mm. end homelessness overnight with that sort of money. And it's being spent on these terrible things where you have civil servants meeting together to discuss the, the, the trouble with whiteness and to essentially, you know, push all of these agendas and programmes which have been shown to cause more division than anything else. Uh, and I think, you know, it's about time that um, you know, the, the, the Tories took hold of this. They have Esther McVeigh now appointed as this Minister for Common Sense and apparently part of her remit is to come to terms with this. But it's, you know, this is in the dying embers of a Tory government. Where have they been for the past decade when yes. this is taking place? Terrible title. Why did they give them these titles? Well, that's an unofficial title. That's not, yeah, a, that's I not know, a real title. Yeah, I know, but I mean, it's sort of, you know, but also what is she meant to be doing, actually? What is it? An anti-woke thing, isn't it? Or something like this? Anti-woke well, yeah. uh, anti thing. Um, but, you know, do you go along with the idea that the civil service, Patrick, is basically sort of, that it should be replaced? I, 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 I like this American idea mm. that you basically bring in with you a civil service. Would you, do you think that would be good for this country or not? I do now. I, I, I'm quite regretful about that because the, the, the British ideal of the impartial civil service was yeah. a good model, but we've, we've reached a stage in our society uh, of polarisation mm. and the cohort of people that the civil service draws from, mm. sort of uh, liberal left graduate class, all clustered in various uh, affluent London villages, all thinking the same, all reading The Guardian, uh, mm. you know, all hating the right. It, um, I do now think the case is overwhelming for uh, newly elected administrations bringing in yeah. leadership groups mm. for every uh, Whitehall department mm. uh, and policy making groups. I think just having one or two special advisors fighting, you know, mm. 20 senior Sir Humphreys who are all leaning uh, culturally left uh, is a recipe for disaster. And, and again, we're seeing, as, as Rafe was saying, under a conservative government, you have the, these EDI uh, reward schemes. I mean, mm. did the minister even know about that? Did the minister in the relevant department push back against it? Uh, it just seems there are so many examples of uh, anti-conservative things happening across the civil service under a conservative government. I mean, it does make you worry what mm. happens when the ministers who are brought in under Keir Starmer actively want to drive this agenda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think actually, you know, it makes you think that perhaps during the referendum campaign, for example, or during, during that whole period, that perhaps many people, Brexiteers, underestimated quite what they'd be up against. You know, like the, the level of general sort of you know, opposition that there would be among this is a big slice of opposition, isn't there? Unelected, mm. and I just wonder whether people were 
as aware as they could have been. Well, they certainly didn't expect it to be within the, their own, the party that they voted no, for. I no, mean, that's the thing. No. I mean, the, the left always say, well, you chaps have been in power for so long, you've only got yourselves to blame. Well, yes. yeah, to an extent that's true. Yes. But of course, you know, you may be in government, but you're not actually having a, an effect in the same way that councils are, that institutions are, that yeah. universities are, museums, galleries, the BBC, all of the institutions of state have been captured by this work ideology. We've got nothing to reverse that. And they actually have, in many ways, a far bigger impact on the culture of the nation and on society and on the, the daily experience people have with the world around them. Mm. Now, one of the other policies announced this week on the civil service is Jeremy Hunt said he wants to push ahead with, pushing, with bringing out uh, senior civil servants out of London, which is great because at the moment, two thirds of senior civil servants who are actually part of this Westminster bubble that Patrick is talking about live in London. And if you were going to send them to Aberdeen and, and Doncaster and elsewhere, you would actually bring in a different dynamic because most of the senior civil servants will never want to leave their cosy suburbs. So they will mm. resign from the civil service, which will be not provide an opportunity for people from the north of England and elsewhere to be brought in. You know, remember an episode of um, Yes, Prime Minister, where this was touted and Sir Humphrey Appleby said, oh, that it will never work because the wives of the civil servants, you know, there's no Harrods or Wimbledon or Ascot in the, in the north of England. And that's quite true. So I think you will have an actual cultural change in the senior civil service if those roles are sent up to other parts of England. Well, yes, but this is all the argument always used by the BBC, isn't it? Mm. Oh, you know, we're going to go here and going to go there and it will change. But I mean, basically, the same people get mm. kind of taken on, don't they? They get the same sort of attitudes always seem to emerge. It's made no difference to the BBC, the fact that they're in wherever it is they are. Salford. Yeah. yeah, I think the danger is you, you replace one metro hub yes, with another. Yes. So it's Manchester or Leeds in the case of Channel 4 News. Yeah. Um, I sort of think the civil servants will wangle it that they're in Oxford, Cambridge, Brighton, <laughs> yeah, Norwich, yeah, York, yeah. rather than, you know, yeah. Stoke-on-Trent and, and, and Nottingham and Works or Mansfield. You know, if they could get them into, yeah. you know, proper red wall towns. Well, and I think that is the plan. Locally, I think it's Aberdeen, Doncaster, these are the places right. that are being touted. Well, so well, if they can be brought into those areas. And actually, you know, as again, we mentioned Dominic Cummings, I mean, his, his plans for reforming the civil service to merit a longer discussion than we have here. But mm. excellent, you know, bringing political advisors right into the right into different uh, civil service departments so that they're there mm. physically to see what's going on and actually recruiting people from different areas, you know, because the people that succeed in the civil service are those people who are careerists, who don't shake the boat, who actually mm. don't have, don't think outside of the box and they simply know how to promote themselves uh, without actually bringing in radical change and radical ideas. And people who are excited about uh, issues tend to leave for other areas because they're so frustrated by the apparatus of the civil service. Yeah. Do you share Ray's high opinion of Cummings? Well, I certainly think that um, the Cummings-Johnson partnership from whenever he took over, July 2019, uh, drove... Uh, Brexit incredibly hard and I give Boris Johnson and Cummings a lot of credit because mm. they were soaking up enormous amounts of establishment mm. abuse whether it's legal circles media circles the massive House of Commons majority which was really uh, mm. anti-Brexit mm. even to the point though they didn't admit it of thinking they could block it all together they didn't admit it until very late in the day with mm. the idea of this so-called people's vote to overturn it and that that Johnson and Cummings sort of rescued our democracy mm. i do think that um only then to to sort of throw it away yeah. shortly afterwards yeah. um speaking of uh, red wall blue wall there's been some talk it sounds like rubbish talk but of 
a dream team between Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage. Nigel being back from the uh, jungle this week. Um, and uh, do you, is that just, you know, just tittle-tattle? I mean, to me, it seems like it, it couldn't be a dream team when you look at what they both think on migration. Mm. One is huge liberal and one more mm. hardline, you know. I mean, I think this side of the general election, I would be absolutely astonished if Nigel Farage were to get involved in the Conservative Party. Yeah, yeah. And I think already since he come out of the jungle, you, you've heard the derision he has, and particularly on the issue of mass migration, legal mass migration, even above yeah. uh, illegal migration. And I think you and me, Peter, also both know, I think that if Nigel gets involved in an enterprise, he usually envisages a leadership role yeah. for himself <laughs> rather than being a junior minister to Rishi yes. or Dave. Yes. So yeah. I think Nigel Farage, his political activity next year in 2024 will be all designed to beat the Conservative Party down to the lowest possible level. And only then after the election, he may decide whether yes. whether this is a cheap stock that he's worth him buying into or does he stick with reform and try and replace them all together because he's sort of he's sort of on two horses at the moment isn't he because on the one hand you know he's saying you know basically Tories need to be well he's saying that actually he you know who knows I might join or whatever and on the other hand he's also president of a party that wants to obliterate the Tories you know so in a way he's I but of course you know the fact is I mean we were discussing before we were went on air that of course if there was a general election the, the very likely result is that the very people who would, would remain as Tory MPs are the ones who are most opposed to Nigel Farage mm. the One Nation Tories mm. people on the left of the Tory party mm. so the idea I think that uh, there's any hope of Nigel Farage taking over a party or leading a party which is you know populated by people who despise him I think is is for the birds I just can't see it happening there'd have to be a schism within the Tory party and he would it could only appeal to you know the ERG and other and others on the, on the right you know but I, I but I said you know a couple of years ago you know when uh, well after Brexit when Nigel retired from from um, from the Brexit party as it then was you know he's sort of the canary in the coal mine you know when there are big issues mm. about to come mm. he will come back to politics when there is an issue that is as, as electric as Brexit. And I said mm. at the time, an immigration party would be the actual way for Nigel yeah, to come yeah. back into power, but the time wasn't right because immigration wasn't then. The big topic is still becoming. Mm. I'm still not sure whether we're quite at that point yet, but we're certainly coming to the point where mm. immigration oh, yeah. does have the ability to revive uh, the whole sort of UK Brexit atmosphere. And Nigel, of course, would be a logical person to. to don't to don't you that. think you know those demonstrations that we've seen over the past you know month, that seems to have really opened quite a few people's eyes on this mm. issue, on mm. migration, not mm. on Israel. On no, I completely agree. And the, again, Suella Braverman proven right yeah, on yeah, multiculturalism yeah, yeah. having failed on a lack of integration. You mm. know, I accidentally stumbled into one of these marches and, you know, I, I was quite surprised at the very, very high percentage of people who weren't British on mm. it from obviously North Africa and Middle yeah, East. Yeah. I think some of them, quite a proportion, may have been overseas students yeah, at London yeah. universities. And then there was a sprinkling. Actually, most of the white people there were kind of young, liberal-minded women. Yeah. Mm. But 80% mm. were, were kind of full-on Islamist people who were making mm. no in effort to integrate with British values at all didn't care about, you know, disrupting our capital city mm. and were saying hateful things about Israel. I think that there's been a massive 
sharp intake of breath across the country about what oh, yeah. are we becoming, mm. what is becoming, what is happening to our major cities. I think, uh, as Matthew Goodwin said, that any party, you know, that any smaller party that wants to get on at the moment should talk about three things only, migration, 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 <laughs> you know, not education, uh, but mm. migration. Um, We've been making plans for Nigel again, it seems, you know, haven't we? And seeing what happens. Just one last thing, as a political columnist, um, Patrick, do you, as, you know, looking at the tea leaves, do you think that the more interesting time to be looking at new things happening will be before an election or actually just after? Well, I think it's going to be a very dynamic political year ahead running mm. up to the election because I, I still think the possibility of an absolutely massive conservative meltdown has been underpriced. Mm. Uh, getting on, you know, worse than 1997, mm. Mm. getting on towards the famous Canadian result mm. that, that if the socially conservative or just generally conservative electorate works out, there's no point in these mm. guys. They Not only have they betrayed us, but actually Sunak, Starmer, Hunt, Rachel Reeves, there's not a huge difference. It's not like Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell waiting in the wings. So I think Starmer has kind of played a bit of a blinder by not scaring the horses. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's enough to make a huge slug of Tory voters just sit on their hands on election day. Mm. And Nigel can galvanise another huge slug of them to come out and vote for reform. So I'm quite excited. I think it'll be an exciting run up to the election. Yes. I think... Uh, it seems that there have been sort of certain tectonic plates shifting. You know, it's very, very hard because sometimes you think actually the people, people, you know, people have sort of woken up. But then, you know, you, you go out into the world outside London, you sort of think actually we've got a long way to go yet, actually. But anyway, thank you so much, Patrick. For that. Okay. Thank you very much, Rafe. Um, and um, we shall see you next time. So in the meantime, have a good week, won't you? Bye. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember, to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.